For May 10th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 97, Pimp My Ride of Violence. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of the United States, I am your host, Matthew Rather. I am here with a panel uh, to overthink Iron Man 2. Iron Man Part 2. Uh, joined, um, joined in studio by, by the wonderful Ustream chat room, where we do the show every week, Sunday uh, at 6, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 Eastern, 0130 UTC. I used to say 6.15, but we never get on on time. If you come at half past, we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be rocking and rolling. Let's get right to it. Question of the week. In honor of Iron Man 2, uh, someone had suggested... Um, Someone had suggested favorite toxic ooze in, in honor of the Gulf Coast oil spill, but that's just depressing. We're going to go with favorite fictional millionaire slash billionaire. Uh, and to start us off, first in the alphabet, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, Peter Fenzel is in his basement. Oh, I'm like that giant Hercules wrestled when I touch the ground to get my strength back. Here we are, top of the alphabet, people. Let's get this party started. So my favorite uh, fictional millionaire slash billionaire, for this one I'm going to pick an unorthodox choice, shocker, and say that my favorite uh, millionaire billionaire, he always uses a credit card. Uh, His name is Darian Lambert, and he's from the 1993 science fiction television show Time Tracks. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Time Tracks, but I loved Time Tracks. And Time Tracks <laughs> is, is about, uh, oh, I love this show so much. This guy from the future, who is the villain from Love Potion Number 9, comes back to the present to hunt down felons who've escaped from the future and have gone to hide in the past just to sort of escape justice. Right? So he's basically Dog the Bounty Hunter, but a time traveler as well at the same time. Um, and he has this little credit card that is also a computer that projects a hologram of a British lady uh, named Selma, who like uh, is basically the fairy from the latter day Link movies, like Legend of Zelda movies, who like gives him tips to get through the various rudimentary puzzles he needs to solve, and like pays him company and is nice to him. But one of the things that always wowed me about this is that like the credit card solves all of his problems too. Like he can swipe it and it'll like pay for stuff or it'll like you know interface with computers. It's basically like a handheld little R2-D2 thing, and he has a little uh, keychain that zaps people. But I, I feel like um, being that kind of time traveler to whom like sort of the resolution of money-related problems is somewhat tri- trivial, and being able to purchase whatever you want with a magical credit card, I'd imagine that's what being a billionaire is like, right? So, so I'm going to go with, uh, with Darian Lambert, played by journeyman actor and uh, um, beefcake of the 90s, Dale Midkiff. Nice. Isn't really doing a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not so not so much these days. Mark yeah. Lee. All right, this one's a pretty obvious choice. I'm definitely going to go with Scrooge McDuck uh, because the um, it's just a, it's actually a seductive and irresponsible display of what it means to be really wealthy because he hoards his wealth. It's all in uh, form of gold that he holds in his big storage tank that he likes to swim around in. And it's highly irresponsible, not only irresponsible of him uh, from his own personal standpoint and that he's not investing that money and gaining his wealth uh, and gaining wealth, but uh, it also portrays to people that like their wealth can only be stored in tangible form. 
and that like you know promotes things like hoarding cash, like throwing push putting your dollar bills underneath your mattress, and that's not really sound financial practices. Um, He's actually. I've like, always assumed that the gold in there was uh, the backing for his own currency. <laughs> which uh, which was but he's on the gold standards. That's a whole other set of problems there. <laughs> he's uh yeah he's actually losing money when you consider the um uh when you consider the inflation that is uh going on in uh, Duckburg and the attrition due to swimming. Not with what gold's doing right now. He's, <laughs> he's exactly the right place. you're high. <laughs> Hold on. We, we established with a goofy movie that at least a certain part of that Disney universe takes place in the United States. Is it ever established in the DuckTales universe where uh, you know, Duckburg is part of the United States or is it uh, another sovereign entity altogether? When he sees wealth, dollar signs appear and not like euro signs or you know, <laughs> pesos. So that, that's well, some indication. And also, since it's called Duckburg, it has to be either in Germany or Austria or a place that has immigrants from Germany or Austria, right? So <laughs> yeah, it um, could be the Midwest. It could be the Midwest, or you know, parts yeah. of Pennsylvania or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it could also be in like in like Brandenburg or Bavaria or something. Uh, I don't know. Brandenburg is not a region. Uh, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from that, guys. Jeez. How do you not know where these places are hey, in Germany? Direct, that, direct that hate mail to Fenzel at overthinkingit.com. Moving right along. Uh, it is Josh McNeil. Uh, I'm going to go with Rupert Murdoch. But, uh, he's not but Josh, he's an actual billionaire. <laughs> but he's the creator of fiction. He's the great like, author of fiction. Uh, perhaps the greatest purveyor of fiction of our time. And thus, I, I, I don't have really have much else to say except uh, that uh, we should all sort of view him as one of the great fictional millionaires and enjoy him as such. Well, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. John Parrish. Wow, we're, we're really moving tonight. <laughs> I had something to say, but, you know, you guys, I thought you were going to jump in there and say stuff. But what I wanted to say is, do you want to see a Rupert Murdoch movie like that Will Ferrell movie, Stranger Than Fiction, where he realizes that he himself is like the fictional creation of his own efforts, this sort of like postmodern deconstruction of identity, that he's his own author and he needs to find out what he's writing about his life. Then he can fall in love with like some crazy like 20-something actress or something. But, and then, know, they find out what, then they find out what Rosebud means. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it turns out to be a delicious snack cake. <laughs> <laughs> John Parrish. What up? Okay, so my favorite fictional billionaire, I'm going to go for an obvious one, is Bruce Wayne. But specifically the Bruce Wayne as depicted by Christian Bale in the current string of Batman movies. Simply because in the comics, Bruce Wayne, the, the idea has always been that Bruce Wayne is the alter ego and that Batman is the real person. As opposed to, say, Superman, where Clark Kent is the real person and Superman is his, his alter ego, his heroic ego. That's the fake mask he puts on. Whereas with Batman, it's been, pretty, it's been established more or less in those words that it's clearly the inverse. That Batman is the real one and Bruce Wayne is the mask. And I think Christian Bale deliver, brings more personality to it or, and, and the, the script that, that the Nolan brothers penned invests more characterization in Bruce Wayne as this you know, billionaire asshole who flaunts his wealth, spends it on trivialities, sleeps around with all these supermodels who we know, based on his actual personality, he never actually sleeps with. It's just all part of an affect, which is kind of weird if you think about it. Like, 
isn't that a lot of effort to put into a, a facade, you know, bringing billionaire supermodels back to your apartment and saying, okay, you got to go out this way. I'm going to go put on this rubber suit and go fight crime, etc." Yeah, Adam I've West always put on the rubber you know suit and then gone to talk to the supermodels myself. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. All right, I guess I'm last. Uh, your choices are all good, but my choice is excellent. Uh, I go with uh, Montgomery Burns, Charles C. Montgomery Burns, the uh, suggested by Evie Debs in the chat room. Uh, you're reading my mind, man. Uh, release the hounds. You know, it, you, you, you have a feeling that he has five or six swimming pools of gold uh, all, all around. And, uh, and that he is, he is sort of, um, I don't know, he's sort of the er, the er evil billionaire, sort of the er Rupert Murdoch. Uh, in fact, hasn't he stood in for Rupert Murdoch in, in certain of the satirical episodes of The Simpsons? Deafening silence from my panelists <laughs> on over. You're on your own. It. It's your answer to your question, man. Thanks. You got to defend for yourself. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much for that. I'll release the house. You know what just happened there? Atlas just shrugged, man. You just had <laughs> life without us. And how are you? <laughs> My, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll release the hounds on all of you later. Uh, but uh, the, the fictional billionaire, or millionaire anyway, 100 millionaire of the week, seems to be Tony Stark in Iron Man 2 with Robert Downey Jr., directed by Jon Favreau, starring, you know, all the people who, who were in it. This is it. This is the one. This is the, the, the kickoff of the summer movie season. It is now upon us, though I think we're not technically in summer for another month and a half. We are, uh, we are in the midst of the summer blockbuster tentpole extravagaga. So let's, uh, let's dive into it. Who wants to start with, with Iron Man 2? Here, here's the question that I, I had uh, after walking out of this movie. What was this movie about? Right. What 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 was the plot of the movie? What was at stake here? Rather, I'll 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 take that one for you. Iron Man Two is about Robert Robert Downey Jr.'s character Tony Stark learning that drunken mumbling will not get you out of all of your problems in life. <laughs> so what do, what, what, does? what will then teamwork? Uh, re- repulsor blast. Repulsor blast. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, man. I have one. I have one. So, 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 Iron Man Two is about the um, the experience as told by a fake science allegory of Robert Downey Jr. finding out he has high cholesterol and what he decides to do about it. Right. <laughs> Which, it's about how he cha- it's how it's about how he changes his diet and lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. It's like to- I'm going to be marginally healthier, but mostly the same by looking at what my dad ate, which was mostly healthier stuff than rather what, what I do, which is insert radioactive nonsense into my chest for no reason. Uh, right, here's my turn. But here's, my, here's my go. It's about the movie studios uh, calculating pretty much everything about this movie from its uh, muddled, balanced, quote-unquote balanced take on this political view, as well as uh, the movie studio calculating to maximize on the future Avengers movie, which completely boggled me why it threw in all that same Metal Jackson crap, but that's, we'll talk about that more later. So basically, the movie studio has been calculating and trying to do a million things at once and failing to do pretty much all of them. I'm hating on it too much. I actually like the last third of it, but the first two thirds of it I thought were utter crap. Yeah. I think it's about the triumph of the American spirit. Is it, though? 
<laughs> no, not really at all. No, uh, I, I, it's, uh, yeah, let's talk about. I mean, it's not about anything. It's a, it's a second act. It's Back to the Future too. It's 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 just sort of like enforcing what we knew from the first movie and setting us up for the future. I don't know. I like it's, I like Back to the Future too a lot. Yeah, you know, Back to I the like Future. So I think may may actually have the Empire Strikes Back distinction of being better in certain respects than the original. But McNeil, wasn't it F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's also a purveyor of fictional billionaires, who said there are no second acts in American lives? Hmm. He clearly never saw Dark Knight 3. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) I got to find some space to shove my quips in there. I thought that since we had fewer people, I can stomp on everybody. But apparently I have to give you guys the opportunity to talk, (laughs) which I will do. And I am sorry for that. But first I will say that this is clearly a midlife crisis movie. But it teaches a midlife crisis as if it were a coming of age. And the problem with that is that... By the time someone has a midlife crisis, there is a lot of crap that is already established about their life that is mostly the result of result of experience. So then that is like sort of random and doesn't have anything to do with each other. Whereas when one is young and coming of age, most of the details in one's life have something to do with one another. So in telling midlife crisis stories as if they were coming of age stories, the cogency of the details is lost and this creates this causes the narrative to somewhat run out of gas. This is I think part of the reason why so many uh Midlife crisis narratives are kind of like scattered postmodern um, hexscapes to try to keep our clean language here. Uh, um, because it, it, the story itself becomes so confusing that you must insist that the worldview of the character is equally befuddled. Uh, whereas I don't think that's necessarily realistic. I think that a lot of people go through midlife crises in much the way that Iron Man goes through a midlife crisis in Iron Man 2, where like he's like daunted and scared at times, but everything turns out to be okay. Um, but, but at the same time, like, there's a lot that's happening that if you were starting the story from scratch, you would not include. Uh, and I think that that's an argument against making these sorts of things as coming-of-age stories and trying to find a new way to tell this kind of narrative. So that's my take on the, my summary of what the movie is about. Who's also, good? it has no yes. Who's good, <laughs> Who's good? In, in this movie? Who is good at acting, or is, who's, who's like, <laughs> no, they're mostly who, good at acting. Who are the Who are the good guys? You know, the United States government, sort of bad, or at least ineffectual. You know, Gary Shandling. At least yeah, a bad, the, yeah. you know, at least a bad, uh, you know, a bad protector of the American people compared with mm. private enterprise, mm. right? Um, you know. Well, the Senate is portrayed as fairly inept and corrupt, right? Which is, so the Senate is not just like the voice of the government against private enterprise; it's also like the voice of other private enterprise against private enterprise. So, so the Senate is sort of in league with the other arms dealer in a sort of cynical and douchey kind of way uh, that doesn't really that isn't really important, right? It's like it's just like boys with toys, right? So the understanding is that Iron Man has done all these nice things for everybody, and everybody is kind of ungrateful to Iron Man, right? So, so the Senate tries to take away. Oh, go ahead. Can we talk about that for a moment? This I thought yeah. it, it to be utterly preposterous. This notion that Iron Man had actually brought about world peace, and you know, was a, such such an effective deterrent that um, he really had ushered in some sort of new era in foreign policy and security. Um, sure, this okay. Sure, we're overthinking it absolutely on on this point, and that you know, that's in a lot of ways is supposed to be backdrop to. The, the fun battles with the suits. But, um, you know, if you're talking about suspension of disbelief and buying into what is going on in the situation here, um, how is this one guy that much of a deterrent? 
Like, let's think about, like, the, the failed car bombing in Times Square, for example. What's Iron Man going to do? Is he going to fly? Who does he know where to go in and pop in with a suit and zap, zap, zap with his, with his thing? Well, he, like, well as, right, the, like, as, the, as, the, as the Senate hearing pretty clearly demonstrates when he hacks the screen and then shows some footage within seconds of learning what the subject is about, uh, Tony Stark is not only Iron Man, he's also apparently, and this, 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 could, be, this could be yes all in its own right, but it's also apparently the source of a tremendous uh, intelligence network, like a one-person intelligence oversight, such that, you know, as soon as someone starts talking about South Korea and Iran, he can pull up, you know, videos he has on screen and say, oh, okay, here are their current weapons platforms being developed, and here's what, you, and here's what they're doing, so don't worry about it. Which is a level of response that, you know, the CIA or the NSA or uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency could not currently uh, currently uh, replicate. So, the, to answer your question, Mark, that is apparently what else he brings to the table. Whether that's realistic, I don't know. What? Well, I mean, the the uh, the idea that that Iron Man is going to show up and blow you up if you attack, you know, if you attack adorable children or cute puppies anywhere. Um, the uh you know that idea seems to me seems to me only only to to promote uh you know uh terrorism by non state actors as in it's not an it's not a deterrent is it in fact encouraging uh additional uh terrorist acts well yeah well, because that that seems to be the only kind of ag- aggression that's gonna that's gonna fly in this uh in this new world this new post iron man world well, from the beginning, Iron Man has been sort of a, an analog for the atomic bomb, right? He's he's American technology creating, you know, supposedly sort of protecting world peace. It's the same basic idea. And, and it, to that extent, what you're saying, Matt, is that it's the same thing as the atomic bomb, right? The reason that, you know, Iran's not shooting nukes at us and probably never will is because they know we'll shoot nukes right back, which is why you have the non-state actor. So, like, realistic sort of uh, allegory for the way the world currently works. Especially if you, especially if you interpret the current film in that metaphor, because the current fear geopolitically is that, you know, is that the, the tactical advantage or the, excuse me, the strategic advantage conveyed by having the atomic bomb becomes dispersed. If other non-state agencies get the atomic bomb. So, in other words, if if the A bomb is Iron Man technology, then the fear is that everyone else, every other psycho, like Whiplash in this case, played by Mickey Rourke, is going to get their hands on on Stark technology and start using it to cause chaos in Monaco or Flushing, New York, or wherever. Right, which is what uh, I agree with all the points. All the points, guys. You know, like the Iron Man being an analog for the atom bomb, and what the Senate's worried about in Iron Man Two, with you know other countries getting it. But uh, that's where it starts to fall apart there is because, you know, one dude in a suit, even though his suit is incredibly awesome, is nowhere near as uh, as much of a destructive force as even the most crude of the atom bombs at the beginning. That's what I'm trying to say here. It's sort of like, a, you know, a, a force projection and a, uh, and a scalability issue basically here with one man in a suit yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that, that causes the analogy to fall apart. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of the point of the whole movie, though, is that by the end of the movie, it's not one man in a suit. It's an army of things based on that suit. I mean, it's, it's not just him. It's not fat man or little boy. It's the idea and the technology to create atom bombs. Hey, you know or, what movie this re- reminds me, this whole discussion reminds me of? Is, do you guys remember The Rocketeer? 
because um, the Rocketeer has a similar problem where there's this like they, they have a jetpack right in this movie, and there's this understanding across the movie that if the Nazis get the jetpack, they will have like overwhelming military superiority over the entire world. Like if they get this one jetpack, and and they'll get it by like of course creating huge armies of jetpack wearing Nazi soldiers. Uh, but there's something about it that you don't you know it never really demonstrates for you that this is a plausible idea at all, or that in fact possession of the jetpack is necessary in order to create this army of jetpack-wearing soldiers. Um, and yet I did like The Rocketeer just fine. I didn't really mind it. I'm wondering, would this movie, would Iron Man 2, be better if you had demonstrated more clearly how dangerous slash effective slash powerful the Iron Man suit was? Like if he starts out by like stopping a regional war between uh, you know, Pakistan and India, for example. That um, would have been, been a better That would have been cool. That, been, yeah. that I think would have been a much better use of screen time than... Like, the one scene that jumped out at me as being out of place in the film is the scene of uh, Mickey Rourke, uh, Anton Vank, or Ivan Vanko, his character getting a passport from some fixer in Siberia. Like, okay, this is how he's going to get into the country. We didn't need to see that. I think it could just be established that if he shows up in Monaco, like, oh, he found a way to get there somehow and yeah. snuck in. I don't yeah, think we need why, it. Yeah, yeah, why exactly? It, it doesn't matter. That scene was hilarious, by the way. I thought that scene was really, really funny. Because it's like, oh, we're a slimy Russian guy. Hey, it's snowing for no reason. Because it's summer everywhere else. <laughs> oh, Why yes, it's snowing. snowing. <laughs> we're talking about that. And it's like, we're so right, slimy. Because six months previously, it's snowing. And then six months later, it's still snowing. What it's the hell? It's always snowing in Russia. Russia is always cold. All of it. This <laughs> is one place where it's always snowing and people always upset for no reason. I'm Mark, such a grump food because I live in Russia. <laughs> like, Mark, <laughs> Mark, to touch back on a point you were making earlier about the about the atomic bomb and the issues of scalability, I think I think the reason that one guy in a suit would at least have some advantage over an atomic bomb, and I'm I'm not defending this just be, I'm not defending this because I think it's plausible, but I, I just want to correct a uh, misunderstanding I might have is that is that the A-bomb for all its power can't solve every problem the U.S. has on a military level. Like, for instance, dropping an A-bomb on Baghdad would not solve the problem of the insurgency, except in a really blunt and not very helpful way. Glass parking Uh, lot! Glass parking lot! (laughs) Whereas, I mean, as as is demonstrated from from the few POV shots inside the Iron Man heads-up display... Like, one of the benefits that Tony Stark has is that when he looks at something in the Iron Man helmet, he gets all these intelligence readouts on whatever he's targeting. Like, here's the weapon they're using. Here's its capabilities. We've matched up this guy's face with, like, some Interpol database. Here's all the intel on them. So I'm imagining, and by the way, this would have been a really cool scene, John Favreau. Maybe you can work it into Iron Man 3. I don't know. Heads up. Is, you know, Tony Stark dropping down into some neighborhood in, in Kandahar, you know, scanning around while people shoot AK-47s at him ineffectively, picking someone out of a crowd, zooming in, scooping them up, dropping them off at, you know, uh, at a for, uh, forward assault base in, uh, elsewhere in Afghanistan, and, you know, voila, something like that. Yeah, he does more of that in Iron Man 1, but they don't show it in Iron Man 2, and it's kind of missing. So yeah, it little- would have been nice to see to see him do it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I went mean, through and I, I went through and watched the first one a couple days before I went to see the second one, and and it actually it really flows as one movie. Mm. Like if you've just seen the first one, he's just done that. He's just gone into the town and saved those people, and you've seen him really in action in that scenario. So they may have just thought they didn't need to do it again. That we'd all sort of remember that from the first movie. 
Mm. <laughs> Here, I want to say something else about Iron Man 1 because there's this sort of uh, – now that Iron Man is this big movie franchise, there's this assumption that Iron Man is this like great character and we can make these movies about him and everyone's going to go want to go see him. I was really skeptical about Iron Man 1 because uh, prior to Iron Man 1, Iron Man was a pretty – third-rate Marvel Comics action hero. Okay, maybe second-rate, but, like, not higher than second-rate. Um, and, I mean, there was rumors that Tom Cruise was going to play him and, and all this other stuff. And there's a reason why he was one of the last guys that, like, got into the rotation just ahead of Thor for having a movie made about him. And I know I'm going to incur a lot of wrath for this. I always was fond of him, but I never thought of him as a primetime kind of guy. And one of the things the first movie really did was make a strong case for why he should be in a movie. And perhaps without the the sort of cogency and the way that the first movie worked together as an actual story that held together, we start seeing some of the seams around Iron Man being, like, not really the best superhero in the world to tell stories about. Because, like, he's, he's kind of like Batman, but not really. Like, he's not really angsty enough to be like Batman because he's kind of a dude with a robot suit, but he can fly. And he's kind of like the Fantastic Four, but he doesn't do as many interesting things. He just sort of shoots stuff. You know, and, and uh, it's just like, there just doesn't seem to be a real good reason. The only good reason to make an Iron Man movie now is Robert Downey Jr. Like that's like he made this character happen. You know, he, I'm, I'm going. Um, I'm going to agree and disagree with you. Uh, okay, on a couple go ahead. Of First, I agree with you that that Iron Man prior to this movie was, you know, at best a a second tier superhero. And and the metric I use for this is prior to the movie, could you imagine someone name checking him in a song, like in a in a hip hop <laughs> song or you know a pop pop song or a rock song of, of some sort other than like the really obscure Wu-Tang or Dr. Octagon or Del the Funky Homo Sapien tracks in which, you know, they're always talking about comic book characters but, you know, people will name drop Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or Wolverine or the Punisher or Captain America, maybe but, yeah. like, Iron Man was a little more obscure that being Ghostface said, Killer Ghostface Killer was the guy who dropped Iron Man all the time yes, he was Ghost- not, a, a, like, a front-run guy at the time Right. So. that being said, I think I think Iron Man is actually a, a much more compelling character than you give him credit for. And I think Robert Downey Jr.'s real strength is discovering that character and and giving it life. Because Robert Downey Jr. didn't invent Tony Stark as playboy, sarcastic, borderline, alcoholic, uh, narcissistic arms dealer. That character had, has a long and distinguished uh, camp <laughs> in, in, Marvel, in Marvel Comics. That's, that's who Tony Stark's been since you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, easily. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a lot more to him. And again, to, but I, I do want to share with you your appreciation for what Robert Downey Jr. has done with the character because really it's, I mean, it's, it's breathtaking. It's, it's not what we've had to settle for for comic book movies in the past with, you know, some poor actor with a, a square jaw staring sternly into the distance, vowing to avenge his parents or defend America or what have you. It's, it's a, it's a human with personality. It's a character mm. with traits and quirks and likable bits and dislikable. Yeah. bits. It's Bruce Wayne, except not emo. <laughs> exactly. He like has some coping skills for Christ's sake. Like, deal with life. Well, that, on, that brings up deal with that, life. That brings up something that I found kind of interesting, which is that this movie was pretty funny. Like yeah, most of the superhero movies aren't that funny, but this one just—I mean, I remember laughing a couple of dozen times during the film. Um, which I mean, Dark Knight was an incredible movie, but I didn't laugh that much. Um, yeah, not, not not very fun. 
No, I and I mean, I guess the, a couple uh, of the Spider-Man movies have, have had some comedic bits in them, but um, this no, was I really yeah, just thought yeah, they're super. I mean, the, the way to make a superhero movie seems to be to make something extremely inflated and bombastic, whether it's about like. You know the emotional the, the torment of being an adolescent in in Spider Man, right? Or you know um, the, the thorny questions of right and wrong in the in the the new Batman franchise. This seems to be a movie about having a good time. Yeah, I mean, well, I think part of it is it's hard to feel bad for someone who lives in that house. <laughs> and you know they we you know, they humanize him a bit and they make him some sympathetic um but the scene where he's dancing at the party is is just not something we've seen before which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I like to I'd like to talk about one bit and and you guys can can jump in and, and make fun of how I phrase this but Iron Man the Iron Man franchise at this point I I really love for being one of the few movies to show superheroes in a realistic world. And so to take it to take as a contrast this with uh, this with say the first Spider-Man movie, uh, Spider-Man depicts a sort of realistic New York, but it still has all these weird comic book touches, like you know people going to it. I, I think there's that big attack on a, a festival called World Unity Day or something weird like that, and you know the entire movie hinges on someone's defense contract getting canceled, which we know doesn't happen in real life. Whereas the Iron Man movies have always taken place in a in a very real world, and one of the great things that Favreau does to depict that is these little cameos. Like in the first movie, there's there's a shot of Jim Cramer, you know, the the money ranting guy on MSNBC, you know, ranting about Stark Enterprises uh, C- stock. CNBC, going, CNBC. CNBC, thank you, yep. CNBC, yep. ranting about Stark Enterprises stock going over the cliff and smashing his coffee mug and going crazy. And in Iron Man two, there's uh, there's a sequence with Bill O'Reilly. There's a sequence with Christian Amanpour. Uh, there's, you know, there's Tony Stark on Rolling Stone magazine covers. There's the Larry Senate. Ellison. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, Ellison, I mean, like the Larry Ellison thing was interesting <laughs> because there was a big, uh, Oracle product placement in the, um, in the, the Stark expo. So, um, you know, I, I think that that was probably a, a negotiated appearance. Like Larry Ellison thought it would be cool to be an Iron Man too. Yeah. Yeah, and and the Senate hearing in particular was was shot not like not like a movie scene, but like a Senate hearing. In other words, there were, there was the multiple camera angles. There was people shifting around and saying things like, "Can can we put just a little bits of dialogue? Like, can we put the presentation on screen? Can we can we can we okay, etc." Like just just little bits like that made it feel very much like a real thing going on rather than a movie. And I like could it. This, yeah. Could this be so? One of the this I just I was thinking about this. There's a lot of times during Iron Man two where we see the events portrayed through different ways that we consume media, uh, whether it be like people taking camcorder shots or even like security cameras or television stuff. Is, is there supposed to be a commentary there on humanity's interfacing with machinery around us? Are we all sort of micro Iron Men because we have access to all these different computers that are you know? accelerating our lives and giving us more ability to perceive things. Um, is that sort of part of what Iron Man is about or is that just a coincidence? Well, the, the Iron Man mythos has always been about, you know, using technological prostheses to prolong and enhance life. I mean, Tony Stark himself is surviving bomb shrapnel because he, you know, has this, I, I guess, enhanced fusion reactor right next to his heart. And he has, he has all these advantages by, you know, his technological network that he has mapped to his 
PDA that he can project on any screen. So, so yeah, I guess in turn, like our ability to use iPhones and smartphones and PDAs and to Twitter things and to put video on the web is, I guess, a microcosm of our ability to use to use technology as a both a surrogate and enhancement of our normal awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mean, it's I, also I, it's also Pete just uh, it sort of makes us like him, right? In the movie, outside of the larger context, like he sees the world when he's in the suit. He's got all the screens sort of there in front of him, and we see a, they do a lot of that first person sort of view from him. And so I think that sort of expanding that out into the whole movie is, is a pretty good aesthetic choice. Like Mm. there's oftentimes just sort of a a heads up display for the audience, Mm. be it that internet video from North Korea or wherever. Um, It sort of worked. It tied, it, it tied the whole room together. Yeah. Uh, Let me, let me make a quick comment on this and, and I'll ask for your comment from you guys on it, tying it together. So this movie had two, I saw the movie as having two plots, right? This is, has- well, this is what I was kind of getting at when I asked, what was this a movie about? I think it suffers from Terminator Salvation Disease a little bit. Yeah, it really does. There's like the plot that it's supposed to be about, and then there's the plot that the main actor pulls it in the direction of, which wasn't supposed to be the main plot, but becomes the main plot. So the, pl- the original plot, of- the plot of the movie that I would see as the sort of A to B, what happens during the course of this movie, is about a Russian scientist getting revenge on Tony Stark and teaming up with this other arms dealer, right? And they're, they're going to come after Tony Stark, and they're going to build an army of robots, and they have to fight. That whole plot, nothing really much happens, right? There's some cool scenes, there's some cool characters, but it's very straight down the middle. Like, the Russian scientist tries to get revenge, he fails, he tries again, he sort of succeeds, there's a double cross, things over. Then there's the plot about Tony Stark's heart not working, or him getting sick, him getting the palladium poisoning, right? And this should be the subplot. This should be the, oh my god, I can't fight. What is a good example of this? Um... Well, like in, in uh, it's a good example in RoboCop 2. RoboCop can't fight the drug dealers because he's had uh, some programming installed in him that makes him less offensive and makes him more politically correct. So he's incapable of effectively fighting the drug dealers. And that's like the or, su- of the or Superman 2 where he uh, loses powers and then the aliens show up. Exactly. Superman 2 is a great example where we really want to see General Zod, right? Like, I feel like that movie, I want to remember that movie as a movie about General Zod, but there are long stretches of that movie that are about Superman moping around because he doesn't want to be with his wife or he likes his wife too much to not have his cape or whatever. Wife, cape, whatever. Um, so, uh, so he- so he pulls the center. So Robert Downey Jr. and and the writing pulls the center of gravity of the movie towards Iron Man's experience, which there's a reason to argue for that. But it pulls it away from the larger arc of the storyline, and I think that this is what gets confusing. There's and maybe one of the reasons why it doesn't work for me is that there's no one event or circumstance or thematic element that connects the two stories. That, that's, why is it necessary for us to tell this story about this adventure of Iron Man? What, like, why do we have to talk about him being sick at the same time that we're talking about um, this sort of international proliferation argument? Right? Like, we're basically trying to do Superman 2 and Superman 4 at the same time. Right? right? Where like, super, like, Anton Venko is like the sun guy and he's trying to stop the nuclear weapons but not really. Um, like, what kind of event could you guys see maybe as pulling this all together? Does, does this match the experiences you had with this movie? Um, I, I think they, they tried to tie them together, and they tried to do it with the father plot. Right. Um, I mean, that's what, that that's one what I scene, like, like the father not only tells him he loves him, which, like, gives him the courage to go on, he also gives him the 
you know, atomic structure of the new element that sort of lets him uh, beat the bad guy. Right, 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 right. But they didn't do that very well. I wish that that... Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. I'm sorry. uh, Had the guy from Mad Men playing Walt Disney... Did anyone else sort of yeah. notice that? No, that, like, was, that was exactly what it was with the little Hitler stash and the, you know, and just that whole kind of presentational style. Yeah, well, the whole like, little model of Disneyland, nay, whatever the atom is. But um, yeah, I think that was what they were going for. And that really felt tacked on. Um, the whole daddy issue sort of came up that was immediately dealt with. Um, right. Well, but I way, feel like yeah, that was I mean, what they was, tried unsuccessfully to tie the two together. I, I'll, I'll say it was tacked on, but I, this could be said of a lot of the movie. It was so entertainingly presented that I was I was willing to swallow it. But, you know, yeah, it doesn't really add anything, but uh, John Slattery, the actor from Mad Men who played Anthony Stark's father, Howard, I mean, he just did such a good job with it, and it was shot in such a style typical of the period and uh, but yeah, I was just like, eh, it doesn't really fit, but you know, it's entertaining. So okay, I agree. I agree. I, I mean, there was no point in the movie where I was looking to leave the movie. Um, but in retrospect, it did. I think Pete's right about sort of the two plots not at all hanging together. Mm. Also, as as one bit of trivia, and then I'll I'll step out because I've been talking a lot. Uh, if if you sat through the credits, uh, there's a song that plays over the credits. That sounds very much like a Disney '60s esque, you know, about the the great big beautiful tomorrow, etc. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's a, a very big Disney aficionado pointed out that the song was actually written by uh, Richard Sherman, who wrote uh, "It's a Small World After All" and several of the Epcot Center, Walt Disney World, f- you know, music of tomorrow type themes. Wait, I so- assumed that it was. I would. I. I um. I had assumed that it was written for the movie. Was it written for the movie or was it co-opted it was, for the movie? It was written for the movie, but by, by that guy. By, by that the guy. guy. So it's a small world and a great big beautiful tomorrow and uh, you know several, several songs you'd recognize from Epcot Center. And this was a Disney movie, right? Yeah, I guess Disney – <laughs> Now that Disney owns Marvel. Yeah, it's yeah. true. I mean it's – you know, it's funny. This, this is the kind of movie that, that, um, uh, that fits into the new Disney strategy – that, that is to say, Iron Man has a lot more in common with Hannah Montana, you know, than uh, than than he does with with Batman uh, mm-hmm. as a as a franchise <laughs> as a franchise yep. anyway. Like considering the kind of cross promotional, synergistic merchandising uh, and branding opportunities, right? We're getting a correction for the chat room. It's actually a Paramount movie. Well, I meant it in a very, like, indirect kind of way. I mean, obviously, the transaction between Marvel and, and Disney is still proceeding and obviously I haven't taken direct control, but I just wanted to make that observation. So so this well, isn't a Marvel Studios movie, though? Into the, uh, that I, I can't speak to, but I guess what, what, what I want to talk to now that I've jumped back in after I've resolved various technical issues is that um, while we're talking about the various corporate aspects of this, can we talk about all the setup, the this mishmash and setup of the Avengers movie and how distracting and unnecessary all that was, right? When I walked out of the movie, I thought everything with the Nick Fury, Samuel Jackson action going on, you could have taken all that out and it yeah. would have still have been the same story. Yes, like, I agree. Like, but we wouldn't have been nearly as excited to see the Avengers movie. <laughs> 
don't care so, about the Avengers movie. I care about Tony Stark. So in right? the I mean, coming, in, <laughs> go ahead. No, it's like this. It's it's when you're when you're going to this. All this Avengers stuff is like there for the fanboys, and that's a very small part of your audience. People who are coming there are just going there to see Iron Man and Tony Stark. They don't care about any of the other mythology. Um, and yet, you know, you've got this, you know, Nick Fury with the eye patch, and he doesn't do do anything. That that there's nothing going on with him. Well, he, he I, I found it to be extremely frustrating. He brings about he brings about the reunion of Tony and his father, right? That I mean, he he has the trunk. But that he could have done that without him, though. Yeah. The trunk. He could have found the trunk in his in his, in his pile of crap in his, in his uh, Malibu beach house. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, I think what they're doing with it is actually something really interesting, which is they're they're turning it. They've actually they're playing with the medium and sort of making the movies into a comic book. They're they're serializing movies and doing a crossover and that's something that sort of happens all the time in the comic book world but really i've never i can't recall ever seeing before in in a movie where i mean you've got franchises that go on and on but but in terms of you know different characters interacting and having this sort of common thread behind them i've never seen anything like it before and i think it's pretty cool i mean and and it's because of because of what matt is saying like the the huge marketing machine behind it and all the tie-ins and stuff I think they're they're trying to do something different and yeah, really. This is, I mean, this is this is I think part of that. Exactly, I think you're exactly right that this is the the um, the transition from movies as being standalone entertainment products to movies being um, uh, simply one element in a brand. You, you you know what I mean? And that what you what you participate in is the brand, not necessarily the um, not necessarily the the individual the individual movie. Which right. is why I think the plots of the individual movies become unsatisfying uh, at some level because they are not um, they are not really meant to be consumed alone. Which is true of comic books, right? I mean, so I, I, the I plot like of the comic concept, book never right? ends. I give them credit for trying to introduce this into a movie, but it makes for a sloppy and confusing movie. I, I mean, Pete, you can thing. probably. I was I was looking at the review, Pete, to talk a little bit about like the um sort of like this uh, this concept of like lean storytelling. You have the the elements there that everything's supposed to come together. Things aren't there by accident. You know, the, the pieces supposed to come together in a meaningful way that propels the story forward. It doesn't feel forced or uh, or unnatural. Yeah, I mean, in this particular like re coming of age story, uh, you know, very Joseph Campbell by the books in a lot of ways. Um, and this is the moment when he talks to Samuel L. Jackson, where our hero conf- like talks to the old master who gives him the wisdom that he needs to sort of get over his doubts, right, and sort of move forward. And he finds out what he needs to do, right? He finds out what he needs to do to complete his quest. Um, and then it moves forward, and he has to confront his father, which is another step in the hero's journey. Um, but I, I would say that uh, that Tony Stark doesn't really meaningfully confront his father in this movie. The father serves the role of sort of a second old master. And the way to sort of collapse the narrative and make it more efficient would definitely have been to create some need using the actual main plot of the story for Tony Star- Stark to consult the information that his father had left him. 
Right. So this probably would have involved uh, Venko attacking the Expo much earlier, right? Like, say Venko comes in and attacks the Expo and damages it horribly. Um, and, and so – and say Tony Stark had been working on something at the Expo uh, to try to – that he thought was going to maybe help him with his palladium problem or something like that. Or, or maybe he'd begun to realize that in the design of the Expo, for some reason, there was inspiration that was helping him solve his problem. Then the Expo gets really – robots right and 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 this is what i was thinking about this afternoon um and he needs to find like a map of it and his office has been blown up or his house has been destroyed with his fight with roadie he doesn't have the the layout fully to the precision that he needs so he needs to go and he needs to go find his dad um the, the problem is they doubled up on characters is really what the big problem is is then i think was what we talked about before you know the the samuel jackson and the dad character are kind of the same characters. They have the same sort of tone in how they talk to Tony Stark. They're both sort of a, like paternalistic and they don't really like him very much but at the same time like you know they love him and if they were more different then maybe there would be more of a reason but no what I was talking with we were talking on Twitter earlier today about this about efficient storytelling and about um, the fact that this kind of movie you're going to be jumping from set piece to set piece to set piece and you only have so much time to tell your story so the more levels of complexity that you add like the more different old guys that Iron Man needs to talk to before he can do what he needs to do, right? Like, the more different women he needs to fall in love with, right? Which was one of the great things about this movie, is that that wasn't that complicated. Um, you know, the more different times that he needs to be, like, cast down and get back up, or do pseudoscience, the more times he needs to do that, the less time there is for everything else. And, um, and we need to look for opportunities when you're editing and your scripts to cut those parts out. To be like, maybe we don't need Nick Fury to show up here. Maybe we don't need to have this guy talk about how he can't let him go get a coffee. You know, like, like that hardly seems like a threat. You know, it's like, like that was probably the lowest stakes I've encountered in, a, in an action movie where it's like, hey, can I go across the street and get a coffee? And he's like, no, I'll break your neck if you try to go get a coffee. And then the guy's like, uh, and he just leaves. And like, the guy never notices that he's gone. Um, that just seemed like, why is that even there? Like, did that guy and have that a even, and it, there seemed to be There seemed to be even a gesture to that in the um – uh, in the movie where it's like, uh, I, I heard you breached the perimeter. Yeah, where were you? Uh, I had some other stuff to take care of. Yeah. Like, where the, where, the, where the, Clark, the Clark Gregg character was like, yeah, I, I wasn't really paying attention. My bad. <laughs> right. that, was, that was a terrible scene, but I love that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that guy. He needs like, to be- he's got the best deadpan I've ever seen. Just, well, I, lo- I love him because he's Agent Casper from The West Wing. Oh, okay. He's yeah, also the mysterious of- millionaire in Sports Night. Ooh, interesting. Like, I want to think of so other famous my- movie scenes that would be really killed if someone was just like, oh, I wasn't paying attention. So it's like, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Oh, I was, I was busy. He didn't have time to tell me. Crickets. <laughs> you know, or like... Uh- <laughs> this is, can, like- can, we, can we get back to this Avengers business? Because well, it's still really bothering me. This is the, the, okay. this the, uh- is the problem, Pete, with... Oh, sorry. No, I'm interrupting you. It'll only take <laughs> 10 seconds, though. Uh, this is the problem Go. with not knowing what the movie's about. Like, and I, 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 I hate to keep harping, uh, harping on it because it sounds like I only have one idea, which is true, but I try, I try to stretch that idea out, at least. Um, you know, the, knowing what the movie is, quote-unquote, about is a, is a standard by which you can judge what to cut. You know, and what to uh, and and what to keep because it really it really sort of advances the the main story that you're trying to tell. So if you're trying to you know if you're trying to fight um, Hammer and you're trying to to fight uh, uh, the Russian Whiplash, you know, and you're trying to f- and you're trying to fight like the United States Congress and, and you know what I mean. It's not it doesn't lead lead to anything anything clear. 
Okay, I'm sure you said that all already. What is the movie about? That was longer than 10 seconds. Well, by by (laughs) that rubric, what is Empire Strikes Back about? In one sentence. Oh, wow, you got me now. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, because that's just just about, yeah, because what happens in the movie? Like, the rebels are being chased by the Empire. They strike back. And then there's a bunch of dance scenes. There's then, some stuff in a swamp. There's Trudy, I mean, Trudy tells Joe about her lesbianism. Wait, no, that was that Facts of Life fanfiction that I was reading. That was <laughs> 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 oh, sorry, I got so now can we get back to this Avengers business? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mark, to, to touch on to touch on what you were saying about the Avengers, I'll I'll chime in. The, the thing that bothers me most about the Avengers is is getting back to what I was saying earlier that Iron Man lives in such a real world. And now, like, after this trilogy winds down, he's going to be shoehorned into this world with the Norse god of thunder, uh, a blonde yes. superhero with a bulletproof shield, and a guy who can turn himself really big or really small. And, and- <laughs> yeah, the Thor thing is driving me bonkers. Did you guys stick around for that the, the thing after the credits? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it. So, uh, right, spoiler, they- spoiler alert, although really the, this whole chat is spoiler alert. Uh, the post-credits thing is, is uh, Thor's hammer showing up. Right, so right, so th- that's and and I haven't, I'm not too familiar with the comic book universe, but that is actually the Norse god of thunder that we're talking yes. about here. Like, honest God, you came about how how are they going to explain that in this world, right? They're going to make a Thor movie, right? Midichlorians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a doctor. Thor is a random doctor, and he's pure of heart, and he has magical hammer. This is, then- I mean, this, this is again, this is the thing about not knowing what your movie's about, like not knowing what world it takes place in. You either get technology or God, you know what I mean? You don't get technology and God uh, as, you know, as cosmic forces. You talking about the double mumbo jumbo that we were talking about before? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so by the way, they are making a Thor movie. It's scheduled to come out in 2011. It stars the guy who played Captain Kirk's dad on the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot and who is also in a bunch of capital R, capital C random crap, such as a couple episodes <laughs> Dancing with the Stars, Deal or No Deal, a show called Cash with a dollar sign, which stars Boromir, I think. No, yeah, Boromir as, a, uh, as some sort of like swindler. I don't even know. Um, whatever, dude. But yeah, this guy's going to be Thor, and he's going to be in Red Dawn, too, um, which is going to be pretty awesome, because he's playing the Patrick Swayze part. Um, this guy better be good. This better not be another Sam Worthington. He even looks like Sam Worthington. I'm already getting angry. (laughs) (laughs) As am I, as am I. Um, (sighs) Oh, he's also in a movie coming up called Ali Klubberstorf versus the Nazis, um, where he plays a guy named Chad. Um, and I don't know what this is about, but uh, it's an off-the-wall comedy set around the dinner table. Um, this sounds like it's going to be a winner. Um, never mind. You know what? I'm going to stop reading IMDb to you guys and give you guys quality entertainment. Um, Iron Man, the politics of Iron Man are confusing because it's the politics of aristocracy. Uh, and it's not the politics of republic or democracy stuff. Everybody in Iron Man has some sort of power base or like reason to be important. 
that they draw from, um, which is the reason why we should care what they say. And it does not – the people are not under any really dangerous leverage, uh, any sort of intrusion of the real world into their levels of comfort, which is one of the reasons uh, why the politics doesn't really match up with the politics of our world or why the people don't really seem to meaningfully understand the consequences of I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it doesn't match up with the, po- the politics of our world. This is something that, that Ryan Sheely and I talk a lot on the These Fornicating Teenagers podcast because right, uh, right. You know, I actually think there should be a Gossip Girl Iron Man crossover. You know, um, <laughs> OMG. <laughs> uh, be, you know, because the the politics of Gossip Girl are the are the uh, the politics of of um, aristocracy, right? Mm. The uh, oh, uh, we're hearing from the chat room. Yeah, we didn't post one this week. Ryan's at a conference in, in the international world somewhere, uh, right? That um, that the importance of the the importance of sort of non state actors is. Uh, is paramount in this in this um, in this movie, right? You know, the, these uh, military contractors, uh, the government uh, is is sort of beholden to them, and it's who's going to get you know who's going to get the defense contracts, you know, and the the idea that they're going to sell to North Korea, or they're going to sell to uh, you know they're going to sell to whoever. These seem to be like independent actors, not constrained by the framework of uh, of a system of nations, of a of a league, if you will, of nations. Mm-mm-mm. But do you really? Do we really seem to think? I mean, we find out early on in the movie that Hammer is selling weapons of mass destruction to North Korea or Iran, right? Um, is he? That, is like, that when? I don't think that's implied. You're talking about the scene in the Senate hearing. Yeah, because he shows up in one of the videos for one of the testings for one of the weapons in one of the uh, in one of the yeah, was, like contraband countries. I was right? similarly or, confused, but I think that was just Stark throwing throwing in like a, a U.S test pilot sequence like i, I oh. that, that was my thought as well but when hammer was still employed by the dod later in the movie i figured that couldn't have been true right 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 yeah i, I, think, I definitely right. agree right there yeah um i mean it would totally make sense in today's world it's like oh you know oh we got to get all worried about selling weapons to north koreans while we're selling weapons to the north koreans uh and that's like <laughs> our outrage because you know we don't actually really care about the things that the rank and file people care about, and that we tell them in the television that they ought to care about. Um, here's my here's my take on the politics of Iron Man, and I agree it's, they're they're confusing and and, and sloppy. Um, it's it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. Um, in other words, it's trying to be uh, both sort of anti-government and pro-government at the same time. When Iron Man, when Robert, when, when Tony Stark gets in the open the Senate and says, "I just privatize world peace," right? That's a throwing a bone to. The uh, the the conservatives who think that that might be a good thing, that while privatizing everything the government does, what's wrong with that? Um, so in other words, government is ineffectual. Private enterprise is much better. It's also trying to play the other hand, where government is good. Government is the righteous uh, holder uh, and and should be sort of the have a monopoly on the use of violence. To to borrow a phrase from Chile, um, in that. Um, you know, uh, the Don Cheadle character, you know, takes the suit from an irresponsible drunk, uh, Tony Stark. Um, you know, he, he's still, you know, represented at the end of the day as an upstanding, uh, soldier and someone who serves his country at the beholding of his country. So I, in that way, I saw it as trying to have its cake and eat too, which just created just a, just a, a jumble. And none of it was really clear or well communicated or well thought out. I thought there was a really oper- uh, was an opportunity to say something interesting about um, uses, you know, the, the, uh, the people who hold the power to violence and destruction and 
non-state actors and all that kind of stuff, and it just well, didn't happen for Well, John, I mean, Don Cheadle sort of comes into his own in the movie when he, uh, you know, doesn't he take the um, uh, doesn't he take the the core, the power core out of the arc reactor out of the the war machine suit and kind of hide it away when Hammer comes. He yeah. does, but that's setting up for the, the 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 scene where Hammer comes and negotiates something with these guys. There, it was that was very confusing to me as well. So I don't know if anybody can explain what exactly happened there. I think well, yeah, he yeah. he traded access to the suit which he wanted because he wanted to steal the technology in return for arming the crap out of it. So right. yeah, one of the one of the semantic debates that is like the fourth or fifth plot of this movie is whether the Iron Man suit is a weapon or not, or whether it is a prosthesis. And so the in, the coming on of Hammer to weaponize the suit will lead us to think that the suit is not in fact a weapon. It's not sufficiently armed to be considered like a military weapon for for that purpose, right? Um, oh, it was so, sufficiently armed. Remember the little little miss- missiles and, and and guns and things. Yeah, it shoots lasers it shoots, and it can blow it shoots things lots up. Of stuff. You know, it shoots all. Sorts I got of the things. impression that the one he stole maybe didn't have all that. Oh, that it wasn't as because it could still shoot the plasma repulsors or whatever the repulsor beam things from its hands. But yeah, no, I guess maybe that was a little bit lower tech. I mean, I think the main thing is it's it. War Machine definitely comes from that like childlike impulse to put the second paper airplane on top of the first paper airplane and throw it so that the second paper airplane flies out of the first one. Even if the second paper airplane doesn't go any farther than the first one would have gone by itself, because it's like we've got the Iron Man suit, we put a Gatling gun on top of it to make it that much more awesome. It's like the car has ten lasers on it rather than eight. Um, it's like a pick my ride of violence. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, I had to yeah. pick something up. I'm going to say that it was pretty awesome when the Gatling gun popped up and started blowing stuff up. That, that was pretty cool. They're, they're that was, not that was wrong pretty. in that one way. Can, can I pick something about War Machine for a moment? Sure. Please. When Robert Downey Jr. when when Tony I keep calling him Robert Downey Jr. when Tony Stark is fighting um, Don when Robert Downey Jr. is fighting Don Cheadle in the suits, Robert Downey Jr. Men- makes a mention of something about, you're, you're not good enough to be the war, ma- war machine. You guys remember this? Mm. Where did that w- phrase war machine come from, though? Right? I mean, I th- again, that's something that like, is a fan service to the comic book fanboys know about war machine and the phrase of that, but it's just casually tossed out there in the movie um, and, and uh, without you know, coming from anywhere. Mark, it, it came from it came from that that same impulse as as we always see in movies that inherent narrative need to give every character their official moniker somewhere in expository dialogue. It's like when you know uh, in the first movie when Jeff Bridges has the throwaway line, "We're not you know we're not peacemakers, we're ironmongers," because he be, he takes on the suit that is known as the ironmonger suit in the comics, or. You know, in Star Wars, when there's that guy walking through the scene like, man, I wish we sure could bring an end to these Star Wars. You know, it, it's, it's a narrative <laughs> necessity. It just has to happen. It just yep. has to happen. Get over it. It's a thing that has to happen. Oh, Wait, my but, God. But, it, I also it, think it, 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 I mean, the, ter- I'm sorry. The, Don Cheadle is taking this to the military. Like, as of now, Tony Stark, you know, thinks it's a prosthesis or has at least stated that. And this is a machine that is now going to be taken to the military and used for war. I mean, to me, I don't think he was – there weren't capital letters on it at that point. It was just you're taking this and you're going to turn it into a a machine of war, which he didn't apparently feel that the Iron Man suit was. 
I don't know. I, d- I didn't. I didn't read it that way. I felt it like capital W, capital M. Um, but it is interesting to note while on this topic, though, is that uh, Whiplash is never referred to in the movie as Whiplash, though, right? Which is no. great because that's the stupidest name ever. It is a pretty dumb name. There's a he's lot also, of problems he, with it. He's also hit by a car like four times. <laughs> like they r- try to run him over. That was really funny, but I don't know why he wasn't hurt when he was hit by the car, car all those times. But anyway, because he survived the Russian prison. That's true. If you can, if you can survive cold and like insufficient rations, you can definitely survive a. a, a, a and all that tattooing. To the don't forget exactly. the tattooing. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I will say I was, I was impressed by what they did because. Really, and this ties into talking about Iron Man as a second-rate character, Iron Man has not had a lot of really top-notch nemeses, unless you count the Mandarin, and I really don't want to. But other than that, his his recurring villains have been guys like Whiplash, or the Living Laser, or the Crimson Dynamo, or Spy Master, or... Or just just really a bunch of, of second-rate, you know, nobodies. And then I was like, oh, okay, Whiplash is going to be the villain in the second Iron Man movie. What are they going to do with that? How are they going to make him impressive? And then Mickey Rourke shows up and whips cars in half. I'm like, holy bleep, it's Whiplash. Get out of his way. He'll kill you with his Russian prison fighting style. I dig uh, yeah, I can't wait to see the Hulk movie where Rhino is the villain. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I got a horn on my head. <laughs> Watch me break this. I'm, I'm going to keep on my my, my, my nitpicking. Uh, keep on this nitpicking horse because I'm writing it, and um, well, I feel like it. Damn it! Um, does anybody else feel like this entire concept of the arc reactor is? Uh, I'm not going to say unrealistic, but it doesn't feel earned. In that, like, it is a very small, compact, and, and extremely powerful source of energy that makes all these things possible, the suits and the whiplashes and what, whatnot. And yet, like, it's just, it, it's, it's not explained well enough, and it, it doesn't tie into something that we can easily grasp. And so that, like, I look at that and I think, I'm just not buying this. Like, you know, Iron Man flying around in the suit and this little thing is powering all of this. Oh, and it's also like, you know, making sure that the, 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 the metal in his blood doesn't uh, stop up his heart or something like that. Does anybody else have a problem with the, in this arc reactor thing at all? The pseudoscience no, in this movie is redonkulous. The pseudoscience in this movie is so, so silly. Where he's like, whoosh, whoosh, oh, we're going to synthesize the new element that no one's ever seen before. Like, whoosh, 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 oh, I'm making this thing. It looks like Epcot Center. Bucky Ball. Oh, Bucky I, meant, ball. I, meant, I meant to ask Schechner on to this thing because being our, our resident biochemist, he can, uh, you know, he can tell us. I mean, I don't think you can synthesize an element, right? Like it exists. You can refine it out of other things, but you can't make a new one. No, well, pseudoscience by itself is not a bad thing. Um, when there's, when for whatever reason, you know, the universe constructs enough uh, trappings around it so that you understand its limitations and things like that. Like mm-hmm. in Star Trek, for example, this is always the the example for uh, the gold standard for pseudoscience is that warp drive. You just kind of buy into it, right? Because you know these big starships, the matter antimatter. You understand that it's very inherently very dangerous and unstable, and yet they make it work somehow. Yet it has all these other limitations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't you don't see that this is the same same things in, in Iron Man with the arc reactor. Mm. I feel like there's definitely like a bias 
there's it's like not quite fair the way that pseudoscience works because the instant you explain something that's really stupid the whole thing falls apart for me and i think it falls apart for a lot of people like that like the instant you explain something and it's really really dumb or doesn't make any sense the the suspension of disbelief is broken but you could just not explain it and people aren't going to care as much right so like like right. you don't let's contribute this, anything yeah let's call this the passport problem uh oh right where you don't have to explain what in this movie can we come up with a better name for it? Because I don't think that's intuitive. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a terrible name. Never mind. Um, you know what I'm going to call this? I'm going to call this the red matter problem. Um, because it, <laughs> from the Star Trek, the other Star Trek thing, when they try to explain, oh, it's red matter, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. No, it's not red matter. Like, call, If they had called it, like, you know, vulcanonium, then I'd be fine with it. Because, like, the instant that they try to explain something proactive about it that's stupid, I'm like, okay, this is a waste of my time. So, but so you're they, saying we, yeah. should spend, we should spend less time worrying about preparing the red matter and more time worrying about preparing the gray matter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that if you, you should explain pseudoscience sparingly, and you should make your elements of explanation plausible in themselves um even if the overall impression itself is not plausible so it's like oh we need to focus the tachyon beams so that they resonate they don't explain what tachyons are or whether it's plausible that these tachyons are being used in this fashion but you're focusing the beams so that they resonate and that's certainly plausible so i can get behind that whereas like if we had to like focus the like the pork and beam lasers you know like i'm not really behind the pork and beam lasers like that that doesn't really that doesn't really get me you know what i mean like you're you're not creating that sort of veil of ignorance around the parts of the science that just don't work. So, I don't know. That's my yeah. take on it anyway. I saw it with somebody with a chemical engineering degree who was, was very disparaging of the way in which the pseudoscience was explained and who really um, advocated for never explaining any pseudoscience or technobabble at all, which I think takes away some of the fun dialogue in sci-fi. But at the same time, I saw the point. So I wanted to, to throw that in there. I, I'd like to, if I may, talk about the least plausible element of pseudoscience in this entire movie, and that was Scarlett Johansson. I, <laughs> How is she pseudoscience? A, a couple of weeks ago, when we had our, our kick-ass podcast, I talked about how it was impossible to, to depict a female in a strong, positive action role without also depicting her in a slinky black cat suit and lots of you know, male gaze favoring camera pans. Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow was the person I had in mind when I was talking about that. And uh, the movie did not disappoint me. I mean, there are the fight scenes with Iron Man and War Machine and shots of them, you know, blowing things up, you know, occasionally tight pans on their face, but mostly the cameras swooping around them and taking in the whole scene. And then there's uh, Black Widow's one fight scene. And every time she takes someone out, she always... I'm sorry, McNeil's ringing in. And every time she takes someone out, it always... Always, always, always ends with a shot of her, you know, looking up and tossing her hair back and staring straight into the camera or just past it. So, you know, we get that full shot of, you know, her posing, you know, with her limbs all slinkily right out. And it, it, that, I'm, it's annoying. I'm annoyed at it. It's yeah, interesting, John, did you, re- you read it that way? Because when I saw it with a female friend of mine and she actually applauded the movie for, not, uh, for Black Widow's character not being... Uh, overly sexualized yeah i know it sounds crazy yeah. but like she actually doesn't she doesn't use her sexuality in a way like uh, as a plot point well no, that's that way like she doesn't actively seduce anybody that sort of thing um she does get undressed in the backseat of a car though um so i guess it's a little bit of both yeah i mean if, I mean, if you're I, looking, 
Go ahead. But when she does, the the uh, John Favreau character looks back at her and is sort of like schlubby, and it's kind of, they kind of make fun of the fact that he's gawking at her, and he's sort of a stand-in for the audience at that point. Yeah, mm. but that's that's, that's common enough. I mean, if if you want positive female role models in this movie, then then Pepper Potts, you know, CEO of Stark Industries, is is really about as good as you get. I mean, and she is apparently a, a competent CEO, albeit slightly put upon by the fact that there are constant super mecha terrorist attacks on her company on more or less a weekly basis. Mm. Which, let me tell you, the industries these days, it's tough out there. <laughs> All sorts of crazy stuff is happening to companies, so... I also, I she... <laughs> Also, she can hack computers, yes. which is I, which I thought was it, like I really I know that's a, a pet peeve for for a lot of us. Like these sort of, I can sit down at any computer in the world and hack into anything, um, which was a, a bit needless. <laughs> I thought in this particular instance, what, what was Mickey Rourke's line in that? It, software bad. Yeah. That what it says? <laughs> yeah, it's software. Soft, software bad. you know i i guess i thought they were going for a pg-13 rating so i i guess i thought a lot of the scarlett johansson stuff was was pretty tame it wasn't even as edgy as the the first uh pirates of the caribbean movie where you got you know you got just enough of um kira knightley's bosoms without uh actually showing kira knightley's bosoms in a way that would that might compromise the pg-13 rating they were they were strongly in the pg-13 camp but can, can i bitch about something like i i don't know if this makes me an old fuddy-duddy or, or something or whatever but um you know i i saw this this movie at a matinee and uh there were three and and four-year-old children in the theater mm. and i i just thought that that was wrong you know there was an infant in the theater uh, that I saw it in. I definitely it, heard the cries me, of the baby. To me, that's, that's less bad, right? Like, I, I think it's bad because the barrage of sound and light must, must be sort of terrifying. If it, but if it's incomprehensible, at least it doesn't engage your, uh, your, your capacity, your childlike capacity for terror. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> if, if you're three and four and there are people in peril and things are being, uh, Things are being blown up, you know. I don't know. I I, I think that that I think that three and four is too uh, too too young. The, the, there was sexual innuendo, but it was relatively tame. I thought. I mean, there was no this this was a classic American yes violence no sex movie, you know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I didn't think the movie was that bad for a kid. I mean, I'm trying to figure out exactly. I guess. They were very antiseptic in terms of the number of people who actually got shot by the robots. Yeah, right. Well, like, right, they, exactly. yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Like, they were the robots were on the computer graphics. The robots were killing hundreds, if not thousands, of people. But in the shots, they were like knocking over styrofoam blocks as people ran by, screaming. You know what I mean? Like, like so they didn't show people getting their heads blown off, which was kind of nice. Um, I don't think there was anybody really. Was it? Was there gore? I mean, I guess the car crash, people got hurt. Um, um. Mickey Rourke's character, I mean, Mango, kills a lot of people with his bare hands. Oh, he, he hangs those guys too. But well, you know what that happens? Hang. A lot of that happens off off screen. I mean, the the violence. It, I was even thinking with the uh, 
the you know the array of guns that Hammer lays out reminds me of like the the opening you know the opening situation in a lot of first person shooters where you you're there in front of an array of guns and you have to pick up one to choose like it was really it was really video game violence brought to the brought to the big screen with the heads up displays and the kind of you know the kind of surreal quality of it one of the one of the things I picked up watching this, and it was also something I, I saw in Dark Knight and am now seeing in more and more superhero movies, is I could almost see producers watching this in its initial screening and thinking of how they could tie in elements to the video game. Like, oh, okay, this will be really cool in the video game because, like, here's, you know, here's this new weapon mode that, you know, you can select for the character. I, I thought that in the, in the Dark Knight when they had uh, Bruce Wayne doing his bat sonar and seeing the, the terrorist or the, the hostage takers in the skyscraper while Morgan Freeman narrated over his headset, that felt very much like a video game to me. And I, I saw that similarly in, you know, that long bit of exposition, that needlessly long bit of exposition until the drones landed in that faux Japanese garden and War Machine and Iron Man took them all out. And then the boss showed up at the very end. Yeah, I mean, why did Oracle have a biodome? Did anybody else wonder that? Like, why is this <laughs> a company that primarily makes, what, like, servers and network technology? Like, database, how, like, yeah, like database yeah, systems. Databases. Why do they have a biodome in Queens? Well, I don't know. I mean, why, you know, what would you rather they have? The Oracle bathysphere? Because the- it's, because it's, yeah, here's why. The, um, you know, the old, at the old World's Fair, there were national pavilions, right? Mm. But th- in the new Stark Expo, there were corporate pavilions, right? These right. sort of multinational, non-state actors, uh, transnational, I should say, non-state actors are, you know, uh, becoming the, the real government of the, uh, of the world. I, I think our world is more an aristocracy than we, we realize a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that Polly Shore wasn't in the movie, um, as has been brought up in the chat room, because there was a biodome present, and it would have really upped the ante. And, and where there are di- biodomes, <laughs> there should be Polly Shore. This is true. And by the way, it is interesting to note that on the Oracle website that I have on the Ustream here, um, they are touting the product placement there. Um, becoming oh. Master Cloud operative and join Iron Man to save Stark Expo. Become a hero. <laughs> That's on their homepage. This is, yeah, I, I hate the the promotional flash game. You know, just that, <laughs> just on principle as a as a genre of of stupid entertainment. Mm. What are the main genres of stupid entertainment? <laughs> no. Like promotional flash games, like uh, collectible, like collectible fast food contests. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah like, the, like the annual McDonald's Monopoly game. <laughs> Exactly. Um, oh, it's it's only annual at this point. It's not semi-annual. Oh, did it used to be semi-annual? Uh, you know, honestly, I have not eaten at McDonald's in in a long, long time. So you know, I wouldn't know. We are trying to collect Park Place. We have always been trying to collect Park Place. <laughs> <laughs> it's an eternal war with a rigged Monopoly game. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of a rigged Monopoly game, this this segue is terrible. 
Yeah, it really was. (laughs) It's time to wrap the podcast. So if you want to join the contest, uh, if you want to join the contest versation, if you want to join the the subtle one-upsmanship that gave rise to overthinkingit.com, sound off in the comment thread, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com, or call 203-285-6401 to leave a voicemail. Make sure to leave your your coordinates so that Tony Stark can find you in the uh, gigantic, violent mecha Iron Man suit. Um, anything exciting going on on the site? Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. T, the Mr. T party is, uh, is coming up. It's May 21st. I believe that's a Friday. Um, there's a Facebook event that you can find on our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash overthinking it, where you can join the, um, uh, the movement, join, join the, uh, the movement, join the Mr. T party. Our overthinking its answer to the uh, Tea Party movement in America, the Mr. Tea Party movie. Uh, we urge you to be somebody and not to be somebody's fool. Uh, so, you know, join us on, on, uh, on Facebook for that and uh, celebrate by, um, uh, you know, by uh, uh, helping your mother. By pitting fools. By pitting fools, by throwing people instead of shooting them. By yep. not, and not getting on planes. Not getting on no plane, Hannibal. Uh, <laughs> he is from the Mantega tribe, and they wore their hair like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> until then, if that's not enough for you, you can visit us during the week at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably does Tony Stark should take the Iron Man suit and storm Cemetery Ridge. Hey guys, the Adam. See, you wait till after the credits, and we we give you a tie into the Avenger movie. It's pretty great.